Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is Paul, and I'm here today with a panel of world-renowned experts that we've called in to address the issues that have been unfolding recently in the Capitol. People that are associated, uh, Jason, John, and Megan, all friends and participants in Forging Plowshares. And I just wanted to get a, a group perspective on things that are unfolding, because I think it's so easy to just get in our own little box and echo chamber. And, and each of us then are in a, a different part of the country Oh, which I think is sort of important at this point, because I think John in uh, Texas, Jason in Atlanta, and Megan in St. Louis, and me in red rural Missouri, that we, we may come at this with a, a little bit of a different understanding. Let me start with Megan, and she's going to, to describe a little bit that I think at this point in time that we've been inundated with conspiracy theories. I can't even keep track of all the uh, conspiracy theories, but obviously the big one is that the notion that the election was stolen and that on certain forms of media that that's just repeated. But then the pedophile ring runs the politics that Antifa was actually the one's who invade, you know, it's just an endless, you know, the coronavirus is not real, oh, the Chinese, or there are endless conspiracy theories. And I'm wondering, Megan, uh, you as an artist and someone who has a kind of insight into the way that media can influence people, what do you think it is that uh, draws people into conspiracy theories? I think the major thing that draws people in is probably it's the story aspect and it's the the story you get told is that you're the one who understands this and nobody else understands it and it makes you important and it makes you feel special um i was discussing this with my family last night and we were kind of talking about it and the thought that it made me think of is uh you get to be sherlock holmes uncovering all of these clues like who doesn't want to be you know Sherlock Holmes in the movie figuring out all the different things that there are I think a lot of people get sucked in really slowly and you don't realize that you're constantly pulling up things that are maybe a little bit less than fully truthful but that once you start down that path and things start to kind of resonate and it makes you feel important because you know the truth now even if it's not really truth the more that sucks you further and further and further in I think it's kind of a slippery slope thing. I think it also, a lot of it starts with you're already thinking in a certain way and your bias is towards a certain thing. You're already maybe leaning on the right or leaning on the left. And then you read news stories or podcasts or blogs or whatever it is that kind of agree with your viewpoint. And then the more you kind of indulge that, you catch some more of the fringe and that's when you say, Oh, I've never heard that before. And you start to read it and it starts to resonate because it sounds like other things you've heard and you're maybe a little bit less critical of it. And you don't necessarily think to check, is this a reputable source? Are, is there verifiable information that can prove that this is truly a thing? And instead you just kind of trade on 
your own understanding of something because it, you know, it seems to make sense. It seems like it's plausible. But in the end, you find yourself getting sucked into something that's 100% a lie. Even if it contained a little bit of truth, it's still mm-hmm. 100% a lie. And that's where I feel like a lot of people have gotten sucked in because there's enough truth in some of this stuff to make it seem plausible. But at the end of the day, it's not really true. I like the element that the, a bit of truth mixed in with the lie. There's scriptural precedent for a kind of demonic approach that it's not simply a completely fabricated lie, though that does seem to, to work. <laughs> but let me, let me pose the same question uh, to John and Jason. That we seem to be in a time, you know, it's almost like uh, the George Orwell's depiction of the future is coming true. It is a manufactured consent in the words of Noam Chomsky that we are just kind of inundated with information that there is a, a docile population shaped by mass media. Megan got me thinking, as you know, I've been going through Bernard Lonergan's insight with some friends and several of the things she said correspond to some of the points he makes. The first, it's almost as if what we're talking about is the difference between what Lonergan calls common sense and then like theoretical knowledge. Common sense is uh, like a storehouse of local knowledge that seeks practical ends and is mostly uh, concerned with knowing things as they relate to myself. And because of how I just defined it, it's heavily subject to bias. And bias for Lonergan basically just means um, ways we cut off having insight that then become self-appropriated knowledge that change who we are for, for the good. We approach, we turn towards being, we turn towards truth. We turn towards God sort of thing. So all of that gets cut off. Uh, And Megan said several things that I think work well with this. One, people are wrapped up in what seems most plausible for them. And if we asked, well, why? I think in a lot of cases, it's because they're seeking practical solutions that they think are going to ensure their quality of life won't be changed. They're worried that somebody's going to take away the good life they've built for themselves And so what's the easiest way, uh, what's the best practical solution to hold on to that? Well, at this point in time, it's by going along with conspiracy theories that say, I'm right and my way of life is right. And there are people that are trying to take that away from me. And because they're out and out trying to take it away from me, I can be violently angry about that and do whatever it takes to hold on to it. Of course, the trouble is, because it's such a heavily biased way of knowing we're cutting off asking better questions and arriving at better answers that would bring us to a more just society, a more peaceable society uh, for the mutual flourishing of all people. Uh, I definitely see that as what's happening around us at the moment. So let me, uh, that there's bias, and another way of saying bias is there's vested interest. Yeah, sort of. The way it gets broken down, you can talk about it in different ways. It's pitting one perhaps false good or lesser good over another to the exclusion of coming to uh, truth. It's not as if people are aware of their vested interests always, though. It is an unconscious influence. I suppose we've all had that experience that 
conscious or or yeah so conscious or unconscious maybe that's what i should have said yes absolutely yeah yeah uh i you know i wrote this morning on josh hawley and and we kind of see the in somebody who is politically ambitious why there might be a vested interest in his part to hmm. make himself prominent by being the single junior senator you know i think the youngest member of the Senate. And yet here, here he's uh, been able to get himself in the spotlight by being the singular voice objecting to the results of the election. The cravenness of it, he kind of reeks of it, that it's his own self-interest. But, but of course, with somebody like that, that has just been reduplicated again and again in the Republican Party. Hmm. We've seen individuals that have a few years ago, Ted Cruz talks about Donald Trump in the most disparaging terms. Lindsey Graham says that he's a kook. You can just go through all the people that have become his main supporters, go back a few years, and they're the ones who were just thought, oh, this is, this is going to be disastrous. And now it's like in public, we've seen them emptied of any ability to stand up against the power uh, and their uh, clearly their own vested interest that politically. And so there's been a public display of the sort of thing that you're talking about. It's not like any of us are innocent of that because we've all experienced that, oh, well, it's probably my, you know, I don't know if we actually go through that thought process, but that we're able to deceive ourselves enough that we miss the fact that we've attached ourselves to a, a kind of despicable idiot. Yeah, I mean, and this is the nature of sin, right? That whenever you persist in sinning, it's not, I mean, this is corruption. It corrupts you to the point where you're becoming enslaved. Uh, you're free from righteousness, as the Apostle Paul would say, enslaved to our sins. And so it's as if the situation actually gets worse. Um, bias leads to corruption leads to you know a disordered love within ourselves where we we cease to love the truth at all i like that that love of the truth nobody's talking about love nobody's talking about the basic virtues that we usually attach to knowing the truth in the new testament and i think that's what certainly has been left out mm -hmm. of the, the present fascination with mm -hmm. information we're inundated with information and we're, I think, mistaking information for knowledge. You know, you can't really love information because it's impersonal. It has nothing to do with any kind of shaping of your own personhood or the personhood of other people. That is, it's, it's, a, it's a completely an exchange of impersonal facts. And as a result, to mistake that for knowledge is to miss out, I think, on the virtues like love that we normally attach to insight in Lonerganian terms. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's Augustine even, right? Just One of the thoughts I had about conspiracy theories and what makes them so powerful is they function as kind of a pseudo-gospel because you didn't know something before and then somebody comes to you with this amazing story that if it were true, it could totally change your life and change how you see things in the world. And so you believe it. And then the first thing you want to do is go tell other people about it because you now have this knowledge and this power 
but it's all based in fear. The reason you believed it is because it made you afraid, and now all of your worst suspicions are confirmed, and now you have to go tell other people. Whereas we would say the gospel is all about love. It's about Christ's love coming to us. It's about perfect love casting out fear. And it's about following the truth, not owning the truth. I think one of the major things that you see with people that fall into conspiracy theories is this need to have to lead the charge or to have to be the one that's out there, you know, sharing everything. And I think you even see it somewhat in the, you know, kind of political, like you're talking about Josh Hawley and stuff. I think sometimes people forget what their role is, we would initially look at politicians and say, you're servants of the people. The reason we elected you is so you could speak for us, not so you could get more power. I think in a similar way, conspiracy theorists forget that the whole purpose of truth is to serve other people. It's to serve the world around them. It doesn't do you any good to just keep spreading fear and freaking people out or alienating people because they refuse to believe what you think is truth. Whereas with the gospel, it's something that drives us towards servanthood. It drives us towards love of the other. And it drives us toward speaking truth to power, even when that could get us potentially injured. But it's not because of this prideful need to be able to, like, there's a certain level of, like, persecution complex, especially within the church of, oh my gosh, they're going to come after us, but I'm prepared for that. Like, that's not what the true gospel is about. It's about, I'm going to do what Christ has asked me to do in the way that he did it. And sometimes that could mean that I'm in the firing line, but more often than not, it just means that you have to humble yourself and serve other people. And sometimes serving people is as simple as listening. Obviously that fear seems like all the conspiracy theories tap into people's fears. Maybe that is it by definition. And of course, perfect love casts out fear. Yeah. There's a direct connection between fear and violence that what you're afraid of you know, you learn to strike out yeah. at it, uh, not in any kind of reasonable fashion, not in any kind of peaceable, peaceable fashion, but in a self-protective fashion. And so there is this kind of isolating aspect to, to fear, but also then to the conspiracy theories. Yeah, fear makes us very, very tribal very quickly. I've had a couple of um, not-so-happy Facebook and Instagram interactions with people where they've been going off about something that's going on in culture and they're people I care about. So, you know, I try to say something like, hey, well, have you thought about this? Just to try to like have a discussion and am immediately shut down with, well, you're on the slippery slope and you're probably not really a Christian if you believe this. And I'm like, well, we can no longer have a discussion about this because your fear is now driving <laughs> And it's creating an inability to listen. Right. A lack of humility, in incapacity to hear what the other person is saying. Jason, I know you're trying to jump in now. <laughs> no. I think we're hitting on some, some major issues. I think that there are some terms that are standing out for me that, that, we might, that might be helpful to introduce. One, I think, is disillusionment um, that has led to cynicism. And what I mean by disillusionment is in the past hundred years, what major political power structure or administration has given us much reason to trust that they are able to provide the things we've been told are, are being provided to us in, in America? You know, are we really 
healthier than we've ever been? Or do we really have more opportunities? Are we being given the things that we um, have always been told are are ours uh, by just the blessing of being here? We've seen lots of corruption and we've seen lots of playing around and people and lies. In fact, uh, you know, looking at it now, I, I think that there's a lot to be said to some of uh, Michael Moore's analysis, I think. Uh, and I think Sarah Kenzier is a great reference point for her ability to look at um, what economic situations have led people to be disenchanted with the structures and the processes, the procedures, and what things have happened that have made them go, and this isn't working for us at all. That, I think, leads to a cynicism that I can't trust any of this. What's also, I think, a huge part of the willingness to get into conspiracy theories is um, what sometimes I hear thrown around the term identity politics. But it's not just abortion is wrong or I think we should you know, take care of poor people and this is how we should do it. It is, I am a conservative. I am a liberal, and it's those godless people on the other side. So as soon as you identify yourself as this thing, mm -hmm. it's, I think it's so much easier to find an enemy. And that, that enemy is the problem, rather than the situations, the actions of uh, specific people. What John earlier was talking about, when you're talking about local news, I was hearing community rather than living in a community of people that know each other. And, and when you know each other, you know each other's faults and you know each other's strengths. And uh, Otis down the street gets drunk, you know, on Wednesdays or whatever. And you just, you understand people. And there's a certain um, lack of naivete. Maybe there's some in there, but there's a certain understanding of yourself as part of this complicated whole. Whereas with identity pol politics, everything is very simplified. And you get to paint uh, a very clear picture of who's the good guys and who's the bad guys. And I think conspiracy theories feed that because it's it, you, you're, you're wanting to jump into stories that uh, support your sense of who you are and who they are. And if you're already, I think, suspicious and cynical the the real problem with with conspiracy theories in my mind isn't that people believe them it's that people refuse to believe anything that might stand up against them anything that you can say about a conspiracy theory it doesn't matter what kind of evidence you've got all that matters is that's not this that's not this conspiracy the trump thing is a prime example anything that you say is automatically suspect because of who it comes from um, well, that's just that's of course that's what the liberals say. Well, no, the the question isn't what do the liberals say versus what do the conservatives say. The question is, well, what's true? You don't have to ask what's true. You just assume what's true is whatever best describes reality according to my understanding of who I am. And so I think what people are really doing when they're looking for conspiracy theories is they're trying to find an explanation of reality that supports and strengthens their self-understanding who I am and what makes this broken world make sense 
with my understanding of who I am and, and what I should be doing. Let, let me see if I can say what you said again, that we live in communities of disenchantment in which identity politics is the formation of our understanding. I mean, I got a neighbor down the street who just finally took down his Trump flags. Actually, right after the whole, <laughs> right after the whole thing last Wednesday, he's got the Trump stuff, and then this other person, our next door neighbors, had uh, uh, Sanders stuff, and then they had um, mm. uh, uh, Biden stuff, and there you are. And you know, this is just all very anecdotal, but people identify themselves with a brand, and this brand. This way of seeing things is what I am. You can look back at, at the emergence of cable news and say, when this started happening, you know, it made people more polar. Well, what if it was an answer to the, to the idea that people were already becoming more polar, that, that they were looking for sources that would reinforce their sense of identity as who they are? My God, my dad used to tell me that the Democrats were godless heathens in the 80s. I remember thinking that. I grew up with that. Well, that's not true. A great example happened, I think, during the, um, it was a McCain-Obama debate. And you may remember this moment. Somebody got up and started shouting. In the, it was a town hall debate. And a woman got up and said, well, I don't trust him because he's a Muslim and he's a terrorist. And and I mean, right there in front of him and McCain stopped and he looked shocked. He said, no, he's just a person who has different political thoughts than I do. We, he's a good man. We just disagree about some things. We're here to talk about what we disagree about. And to me, that was a sign that what we're dealing with is not just these, I, what ideas do I believe, but who we are and versus who they are. That there's the natural formation of communities. In other words, what we're saying in this, we know communally and that we attach ourselves to a particular community of understanding. And the most natural communities, you know, politically and socially, culturally at this moment that are imposing themselves upon us are these political divides that reinforce our own place and our own understanding you know, I've seen a couple of things, a, a documentary on the power of right-wing media. And in the program, this woman, who she's a journalist herself, but her father is sitting at home listening to Rush Limbaugh and Fox News. And over a period of time, and you can almost see it in the documentary, this kind of gentle old man who he had always been Democratic. Suddenly he's right-wing. He's angry. You know, he's suddenly, he's suspicious of people. And then his wife takes the television controls and they begin to control his access to right-wing media. And it's almost like you can see him shift, that, that suddenly he goes back to uh, people get brainwashed by their identity politics or their identity with a particular understanding. And they may be the last ones to recognize what's happened to them. What I think the identity politics thing does is it provides an opening for the kind of misinformation that we see. I mean, when Fox News started, they were their their thing initially was, well, we're going to try to 
give you both perspectives, right? Um, it was about just a lot going to a place where you could hear your own perspective, not be maligned. And eventually it's become a propaganda arm. In some ways, the, a lot of the news networks function as propaganda arms, not the way most people think they do, but they, they kind of do. As soon as you've turned to Rush Limbaugh, and because you've identified yourself as this conservative, you're basically opening your, your mind up like a little bird in a nest, you know. Just give it to me, I'm just going to swallow it. And that, I think, puts you in a very weak mm-hmm. position to believe anything that comes out of that person's mouth and to automatically be suspicious of everything that comes out of somebody else's mouth. Megan, when you were saying you have this conversation, it doesn't matter what you just said. As soon as you say, well, I I think there's a different perspective, it's instant name-calling. Well, you're a liberal. That's identity. It's not let's talk about this issue. You're not even talking about the issue. You're talking about you and who you are versus who I am. The argumentum ad hominem, the attack on the person, uh, seems, I don't know what happened, whether they don't teach, you know, this sounds like C.S. Lewis, the old man in the, (laughs) but what are they teaching these children? (laughs) That people are not aware enough of what an, an argument is or what logic is. They can't recognize that calling people names or categorizing them has become the standard form of uh, argumentation. It makes me think, too, you know, as you're talking about identity politics and all those kinds of things, that it represents a little bit of a failing on the church's part because, I mean, I don't know for everybody, but in my personal circle, most of the people that believe and espouse and share conspiracy theories are people that are very involved church-going type of people. And as we're kind of talking about it, I think one of the things that makes conspiracy theory thinking so sinister is it gives you an identity and it gives you a sense of, I know how the world works. I can explain everything that's going on. I have a full grasp on how things are handled and now I know what to do. But that's what the gospel was supposed to do. And not even in the same kind of a way. The gospel is supposed to give us our identity in Christ. It's supposed to explain to us that we are created in the image of God, that we're deeply loved, and that we were created to help be his stewards on the earth in the way that he would be, which is to love others, to take care of the things that he has made, all those kinds of things. And that our role in life is not to know everything, but instead to take what we're given and use it appropriately to benefit others and ourselves. I think a lot of The church's current problem is that we have allowed other stories to come in and corrupt and feed us little bits of truth that's mostly lies in that same way then kind of capture hearts and minds away from the truth of the gospel. So that way, even if you come to somebody and try to make an appeal based on the gospel to try to pull them out of a conspiracy theory, you still get shot down as, well, you're not really a Christian. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, all of those kinds of things. In a lot of ways, it just represents a huge lack of imagination on the part of the church that we have the best story in the world that brings the greatest compassion and peace and truth and is able to disarm all kinds of evil. And yet we are not the story that people hear. It's all these other crazy ones instead. Megan, you inspired 
<laughs> so I, I've been thinking about two Stanley Hauerwas quotes recently. Uh, wow. One I was able to share in my sermon last Sunday, and one I could not. <laughs> Stanley Hauerwas, after all. Right? Sure. Um, but last Sunday was the first Sunday after Epiphany, which is the baptism of our Lord. And we got to baptize a little girl. And I began, which means uh, for people who don't understand what all that means. It means during the course of the service, we actually renew our baptismal covenant while the child's parents take baptismal vows. And it got me thinking of one of the things Stanley Harawa says is, you know, one of the worst modern heresies is that we think we're a people who get to choose our story at a time when we have no story. And it dawned on me that one of the things we were doing for this uh, child was giving her a story, but not just any story. We we're giving her a true story. So the option is really, are you going to live with a grain of God's reality or not? We probably wouldn't have to look too far for an example of somebody who continuously chooses a lie over truth, but that's not how fully functioning human beings uh, operate. We actually would choose what is good uh, over evil if we only understood. This is all of that's, you know, somewhat debated. Anyway, the other quote that I thought of, this is the one I wasn't able to share in my sermon, was, uh, Jesus is Lord and everything else is bullshit. <laughs> I think the two go together quite well, because a part of what we are saying is uh, that on both sides, what our politics have been reduced to is elections and election cycles and pundits and uh, everybody is looking for their salvation either in a person, and probably more in a person than even a platform, because as uh, you all were just putting it, you know, people don't follow arguments anymore. What we like, we like name calling, you know, but a true politics would be, how do we live together? How can we order our society towards a common good? And this is sort of out the window but as Christians, what I would hope we'd be able to do is to say, well, you know, Jesus is Lord and all this stuff is bullshit. Like there is no salvation on the right or the left. The sooner we can convince our people, our Christian communities to remember that, we could start building uh, true political forces in the world, which is just to say groups of people who are committed to the common good of each other, not based on some story of our own choosing, of our own making, but uh, the story that is... Uh, the light that permeates all of creation. This is the story that God is telling in the world, that peace and love and justice will prevail over darkness. In the epiphany, you know, um, and a revealing or an unveiling that Jesus is in fact king, not Herod. Uh, you know, it's a, I think it's a good, a good word, Megan. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of ironic in a beautiful way that the whole capital uprising happened on epiphany. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had I was listening to somebody on Epiphany that made the comment that wise men run away from Herod. They don't go towards him. And it was like mm -hmm. and that's part of I think the problem is the church has kind of forgotten what they were supposed to be about. And there's a lot of different reasons through history of the American church for why that is. But it's suddenly problematic when you say to somebody, it's cool to be pro-life. But are you also for benefits for the poor? Do you also care about immigrants? You know, all those other kinds of things. And then they immediately counter with, well, you're just a liberal. It's like, no, if you say you're going to be pro-life, then you need to be pro-whole life. We need to be talking about 
not just unborn babies, but all the babies that have been born. Is there even anywhere for them to go? Will they be fed? Does it matter what color they are, what language they speak, all of those kinds of things. And to even talk about the absolute ridiculousness of we talk about how we're pro-life, but a lot of those same people then don't believe in wearing masks or practicing social distancing and all these kinds of things. It's like, well, you're pro-life for somebody that's not born, but what about for older people who it, they're not safe because they can get really, really sick? Mm-hmm. And even if you are doing all the things... You know, are we talking about healthcare and access to healthcare? Because there's all kinds of people in this country that should have access to healthcare that don't. And if they were to get sick, they're just going to have to die in their homes because they can't afford to go to the hospital. It's like all of those kinds of things. And like I said, I think it it represents just an absolute lack of imagination. I mean, kind of like you said, like we have Jesus Christ as our Lord. He's given us one of the most beautiful stories in the world that should drive us to think of better solutions constantly. And like you said, too, like if we're going to be a political body as the kingdom of God, it's about working for the good of our communities. And there should be enough of us if we're willing to listen to each other and listen to God, whether it's through our prayer time or through the sharing of scripture, all those kinds of things, we could come up with a better way of doing things in the way we're currently doing them. But it's going to take a lot of creativity. It's going to take a lot of courage and it's going to take a lot of humility because we may have to listen to people that we didn't think we agreed with because they may have a better idea than ours. And we're going to have to admit to the fact they might have a better idea than ours and that this would work better. And apparently that's too big of a task at the moment. This is why I'm glad you're here with us, Megan, because you've used language, imagination, creativity. That seems precisely there's a failure of thought. There's a failure of imagination. There is a kind of incapacity of thought that seems to be predominant and that is actually dangerous, that the stupidity is literally killing people. Uh, stupid is dangerous at this moment. And John, I want you to feel this. Is there a particular form of theological understanding that in some way might be stunting our imagination or insight? Yeah, I knew you were going to ask this. I didn't, uh, I'm not for sure exactly what you're looking for because I thought, well, there's a really big story. <laughs> I guess, you know, depending on where you want to start, I, I think the whole thing is a theological failing in the sense that we have forgotten what it means to be human. Uh, we've forgotten really what it means, what's Jesus all about, what what's going on with God. We've, at another level perhaps, you know, we've forgotten uh, how to think about the world, which is, I think, a task for theology. That we as Christians, or the church actually has produced what we call secularism, and this is what we're fighting over. Uh, thought about it during the second impeachment vote. All these people are getting up and arguing back and forth, back and forth, and not really saying that much. But one of the things that I thought, well, they're arguing about is whether or not you can see causality. <laughs> can you see this thing? And, you know, one person's saying, no, you, you know, obviously there's no link. Well, it's actually not obvious to anybody. Uh, you can't see causality. So it's not about whether you witnessed or not, or somebody witnessed uh, it or not. It's about whether or not um, an intelligent mind can make these connections and judge what was the efficient cause of Wednesday's riots. You know, it's it's not a something you just take a look at. So all of those are questions for theology in one way or the other. Do you have something more specific? Uh, well, I guess that, that I, I don't want to answer my own question, but, you know, a few years back, and maybe this is before, I, I, I lose track of 
of people's age. But a few years back, there was the book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. Oh, yeah. And the book made a good point, but it may have missed the big picture. And that was what I was kind of thinking of. You know, it's not just that people have suddenly, in Megan's picture, that their imagination has in some mysterious fashion been stunted. But isn't there a particular form of theology that in fact does not allow for a full embrace of the love of knowing, of the love of knowledge? Yeah, yeah. I was joking around with some friends the other day and we came up with a little song. It's uh, the wise man, uh, sorry to not be gender inclusive, the wise man built his house upon metaphysics. And the foolish man built his house on empiricism. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, in a way, maybe that's what you're getting at, is that what we have is sort of a empiricist, positivist way of going about theology and thinking. And it has certainly uh, stunted theology in the sense I think this is where you actually get the modern idea of secularism. But one is we think knowing is like taking a look. So we all become fundamentalists in some sense when we read scripture, when we think about, you could branch it out, you know, it's not just evangelicals, I don't think. Um, But when you think about like theological authorities, or when you think about authority in general, we begin to uh, be nominalist and voluntarist. We want to have conversations about authority. We think things work univocally. So um, it's not about a participation where there's a metaphysics that undergirds all things, but rather we're talking about particular instances. So is meaning something that is something already formed out there or is it, uh, or, you know, the reaction, the pendulum did swing the other way. It's like, is meaning something totally in your head? But of course, neither of those are very good options. I don't think, uh, you get a sort of Hegelianism. I thought about this too. Um, what's happening? You kind of look around. Everybody's already got their system. They've already got reality figured out. So then they just try to plug in, you know, the things they observe or other people into their system in some way. That accounts for a lot of even what uh, Jason was saying a moment ago about identity politics. It's like, we've already got it all figured out. Don't try to uh, sway me one way or the other. I can just fit you into the way I think the world works. I think that's all a type of theology that stems from, and I know this sounds, this probably sounds bizarre to people who are like, oh, that can't be right. Uh, but I would say, you know, it's a, a lack of, you could talk about it. Are we doing a descriptive metaphysics or an explanatory metaphysics? Because honestly, everybody is doing some kind of metaphysics, but a descriptive metaphysics is unable to see real relations with things. It's unable to understand how truth or being, beauty, uh, goodness, how do these universals actually undergird and connect all things so that when we turn towards truth, we turn towards being, um, we're making a move that, uh, you know, is Christians would say, you know, you're turning towards God, you're turning turning towards a more full human reality. All of those things are true. While theology has turned its back on that to what would be just a purely descriptive metaphysics. So you talk about, or you debate really is what happens, right? You debate what things are, if things are real or not real, or how they appear in your head, or if they appear out there in the real world. But we no longer think we're what knowing is or what knowing God is, is a project about being able to integrate reality into something that is actually true and that we just recognize we're just a part of this, but we become more truly, to use the phrase I just said a moment ago, you know, we more truly live with the grain of God's reality that way. So I think those are two real options and um, we're suffering from 
I don't remember if it's the former or the latter at this point, but we're suffering from sort of this anti-metaphysics, nominalist, voluntarist sort of theology that is taken up in the Reformation, but taken up by Catholics too. You know, it's- yeah, as I asked that question, I realized, oh, well, actually the answer to that is all the podcasts and blogs that we've done. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you don't really want to ask me this. <laughs> the question is an impossible question to answer. I think that people can't locate themselves theologically. And so really the hard work that you're describing to recognize, oh, we are we are in a particular theological moment. It's not simply Protestantism. Certainly it's an outflowing out of Catholicism. So you can't just put your finger on it. But I think there is the sense that in the uh, Protestant Reformation, that there is an embrace of a kind of an emptying out, as you've described it, in, in terms of nominalism. And nominalism is the, the realm of understanding that we live and move. And, and, and in a simple way, the counter to nominalism is, uh, I've been very interested in uh, Catherine Sonderegger's theological picture. And, and of course, the answer is very simple, that we encounter God, who God is, in, in, his, in the reality of the imminent trinity, in creation, in, in personhood, that, you know, God can't be who he's not. And so she's going back, picturing then in the Old Testament that it's already a Trinitarian unfolding. Unfortunately, I'm afraid in the developments, the particular emphasis that arises you know, Luther's, and, and it's not that Luther didn't do some good stuff, but the, the picturing of an incapacity or inability to access who God is in reality, I think is simply countered by the, the gospel message that we know God in Christ and that we have a true encounter with reality, the reality of God, and there is not simply uh, we're not removed from that, but we have access to that. Yeah, I'll, uh, you know, I was thinking I might be able to actually do an illustration that is meaningful to people of all of this. I wrote a thing earlier this year. I think I called it like the when common sense becomes evil or something like that. It's about what we've been talking about this whole time, really. But you can take racism as a discrete example. So many people will deny that they're a racist or deny that they're been white people, obviously, as I'm talking about, will deny that they're a racist or deny that they uh, participate in a racist system that benefits them in some way because they've never done anything that was particularly racist. And so this comes back to what I was saying earlier, you know, is knowing like taking a look. Well, you can't actually see things like redlining. You can't see things like uh, the way our School systems are often divided up in communities that uh, privilege white kids and disprivilege um, black kids. And so because you can't see those things, you have to actually ask questions about data and form answers and then make a judgment. People are just very resistant to the idea that they might be, in fact, a racist. But we recognize there's more at stake to this question than just who's right. So that once we say, you know, knowing is a process and knowing is a process that follows the pure question, this idea that as human beings, we're open to asking questions and coming to answers, that those answers themselves are merely hypothetical until we make a judgment about them. You know, is this true? Is it not true? 
And when we do that, because of what we've already said about metaphysics uh, a moment ago, that you're saying not only is this just a matter of fact, but it's uh, a truth in some way that requires me to live a certain way. It's a new reality that is taking shape for me. As Christians, we think, you know, that's if it's reality, if it's what's true, then it also in some way is our turning towards God, thus also becoming fully human sort of thing. So this little question that I hope nobody would think innocuous is, you know, am I a racist or something? If we're dealing with those sorts of questions, what's at stake is much more than just, are we arguing about a fact? It's not just a difference of opinions. And so all of that is the process that I'm just just tried to describe a little bit. And there are two different ways of approaching that. And so people have said in the past, this would be like your nominalists, whatever we say about this, it's just an instance of the here and now. It doesn't have any bearing on who you are as a person. Uh, it doesn't have any bearing on what God has the direction for all things. You know, the final causality is what the medievals would have called it, something like that. Uh, why is all this the case sort of thing? And so once you cut it off from anything truly metaphysical where it's connected and we're just saying, well, is this the case or is this not the case? People then fool themselves into thinking that that act of judging doesn't really have anything to do about knowing. Uh, it's just a further step so that what you know really is just uh, what you're sensing, what you're perceiving. And people have argued whether our senses are actually up to the task of knowing reality. You know, this is the odd things philosophers start questioning. But I would say by the time you're doing that, you're involved in such a degenerate conversation that um, like we're so far removed from what matters, from truth, a love of truth, a love of truth that changes your reality. Uh, it does seem a bit pointless. So I think that's why when we have this conversation about theology or two types of theology, there really is something at stake even if it sounds a bit esoteric. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's the, 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 the danger in using a word like metaphysics. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, that part of the problem is a kind of perverse entry of metaphysics. It's not that, that we need to disavow that we do metaphysics. It's that, in fact, uh, there, there has been a kind of emptying out of knowing because of a metaphysical presumption. That's right, that's right. This concludes part one of the podcast, our podcast on the present moment. We'll continue with part two next week. If you liked the podcast, please indicate so on whatever social media you may be using. We do have a Patreon page if you'd like to visit and join. We have a donate section on our Forging Plowshares website. We are dependent upon donations for this ministry. And so we appreciate any participation or support that you might get. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.